Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here today with Dr. Kit Prendergast, a native bee scientist from Australia. She's here today to tell me about her paper in which she describes a new species of bee in the family Colatidae, the plasterer bees. Welcome, Kit. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Zoe. So firstly, why are these bees called plasterer bees? So um, the family Colatidae is actually a super diverse um, family of bees, got many, many genera, um, and the species within this family, they look very different, very diverse, but one of the common features that all of them have is that they line their nest with a cellophane-like secretion. There's a company called Humblebee that is looking to synthesize this cellophane-like secretion that the Coletids produce to create an alternative to plastics, like a biodegradable, all-natural, like, plastic alternative. Because when they line their nests, it needs to be, um, like, waterproof, and it has, like, antifungal properties. It's quite strong but flexible. So, yeah, that's why they're called um, plaster bees, I guess, because they plaster their nests with this sort of, like, cellophane-like secretion. Oh, wow. And what about their specialized behavior, the oligoletic part? Bees, they are in a sort of spectrum from generalist, which is um, polylectic, to specialist, which is oligoletic. And it describes basically how versatile they are in their foraging. So some species um, will forage on a whole range of plants from different families, um, an example of that is the European honeybee, Apis mellifera, which is why it's not threatened, it's not endangered, it can be introduced all over the world and into all sorts of crops to pollinate them because it's not specialised, It's it will eat um, pollen from a whole range of different flower types. But then we have um, bees that are oligoleptic, which means they have evolved to specialise on collecting pollen from just one family of plants. And this new species that I've found, it um, specialises on um, collecting pollen from the plant family Fabaceae, but not only is it like specialised at the family level, it's actually super, super specialised. So we'll only collect pollen from um, plants in the genus Jacksonia, and it won't collect from any Jacksonia species either. It will, it's only re- recorded collecting pollen from two Jacksonia species. So it's very, very specialised, and that makes it at very high risk of going extinct because if its host plants aren't there, it can't switch to forage on a different um, flower species. And the Jacksonia species, what kind of plants are these? So they have um this flower structure where they've got they don't look like your typical I guess flower where you've got the um pollen and nectar in the center and then a ray of um petals around the outside 
they have, um, it's called like a, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, papillonaceous structure. And um, they've got basically a, a petal at the back and then two petals at the bottom. And then they've got two petals coming out the front that are sort of together and they're in a shape of a keel. Like if you look at a boat and it's got that sort of keel um, and these petals are joined together and inside the keel is the nectar and pollen. So for the bees to get to the nectar pollen, they need to push open the petals that make up the keel to access those um, nectar and pollen rewards. And uh, we'll get back to this later because they have obviously a specialized structure to do that. But to back up a little bit, where do you find these bees? So these bees are um, very rare and very restricted in their distribution. And um, like firstly, because they're um, oligolectic on these Jacksonia species, they can only occur within the distribution of these Jacksonia species. And um, I found that they don't even occur everywhere that these Jacksonia species occur at all. Um, they've only been recorded in um, five locations, all in the southwest of Western Australia. And Southwest WA is an internationally recognised biodiversity hotspot. Um, it's renowned for having a very high diversity of plant species um, that occur nowhere else in the world. And um, it's also um, subject to a lot of historical land clearing for agriculture and urbanization and now ongoing urbanization. So um, these locations that it's found were mainly around Perth, which is the capital city of Western Australia. Like the beautiful thing about WA is that when you think of a city here in Australia, it's not this big concrete metropolis. Um, there's fortunately lots of bushland scattered um, throughout the city, like the remnant. It's not like someone's planted a park. It's remnant patches of bushland, um, which makes, yeah, um, Southwest WA and Perth very special, but also places at risk of all those, like, you know, threats associated with urbanisation, like um, pollution and ongoing land clearing and fragmentation and trampling and all those sort of threats. Wow, I can feel how much you love this area and you've probably spent a lot of time there collecting. So can you tell us about what field work is like and how you collect these bees? Yeah, so I um, discovered these bees as part of my PhD. My PhD was looking at the effect of urbanization on native bees and I was comparing people's gardens with these remnant bushland. And um, you know, the overarching result was that remnant bushland is better habitat for native bees and we can't replace it with people's gardens even though people's gardens have you know plenty of flowers um it's not the same habitat and ecosystem and like a big thing that emerged was the importance of high proportions of you know these like special native flora that our native bees have co-evolved to forage on and i guess like southwest wa and australia in general is really um, unique and lots of sort of principles of conservation don't quite apply here because we've been a continent that's been isolated for hundreds of thousand years so our species have evolved 
sort of specialized relationships you know we've got marsupials we've got all these crazy like animals crazy adaptations and the same goes for our plant life and our, our bee life so yeah I was um, doing that and also looking at the impact of European honeybees on our native bees and um, yeah I went to 14 different sites uh, once a month over two years in the spring and summer and uh, yeah just it's really the best job in the world um being a native bee scientist <laughs> especially like with what i do just getting to go out and like go among flowers with your sweep net it does get very hot sometimes in summer it's like over 40 degrees you're dying and of course there's like snakes <laughs> and um sometimes there's fire but yeah it's it's just life it's what it's like living in australia and it, i wouldn't live anywhere else it's amazing it's totally worth it to you yeah. So I'm imagining you sweep netting your, your way through these brushlands and you collect uh, a bunch of these bees and you collect this particular bee. Did you know when you first saw it that it was a new species, something different and interesting? No, I didn't because I, like when I first collect the bees, firstly like to really um, look at the specimens, unfortunately, you have to euthanize them and look at them under a microscope because you can't determine what species it is. Like the diagnostic features in general are like shape of wing veins. Um, like a key feature of the family Colletidae is that the basal wing vein is straight. And, you know, you just can't see that when you're just looking at a bee. Um, <laughs> So, but then when I was like looking through all of them, I was like, this is a really interesting um, Leoproctus. So Leoproctus is the genus that it's in. And they they usually have like a Clypeus is sort of the front of their face and it's usually flat. And I realized that in both the males and females, it was like sticking out like a snout. I was like, that's really unusual. Um, and then going through like the tax taxonomy in Australia is really really behind um you'd think for like a a first world country like we'd be I guess, up to scratch on our taxonomy but it's not like there are so many species that are undescribed there's genera that require visions lots of the genera don't even have keys um fortunately leoproctus does have a key but it's not complete it needs updating and it's a bit of a, a bit of a mess as well and needs to incorporate like genetic work so yeah it's like when I first got into my PhD, I was like, yeah, <laughs> same with like when I did um, like I have a zoology degree and I we did I actually never did entomology like the university I went to didn't offer entomology. Um, I never really studied bees. I just sort of like learned about one species in terms of their mating strategies. But like it was all new to me. Um, but I, I got super passionate and just like read everything I could talk to entomologists. Um, but yeah, I thought I did zoology. I learned how to use diagnostic keys, mainly with um, reptiles, because my zoology professor, um, he was really into herpetology. And I, I mean, I love herps as well. Um, so yeah, I learned how to use keys. And I was like, yeah, it'll just be simple. It's like any other like reptile group. You just look at the animal, look at the key, go through like the diagnostic characteristics, and then you get to the species. But I was like, oh, this is a big big learning curve and also like there's so much that work that needs to be done so anyway I was like I couldn't identify it to any of the described species and I was like I, given that it's super distinct I was like 
I'm surely in the key it'd be like has a protruding clypea somewhere in the key block leaf couldn't find anything couldn't even get it to the subgenus like it doesn't actually fit into the any of the currently described subgenera um which is another big flag that the Leoproptus need revising so this this species i couldn't even get into the subgenus so i was like oh this is this is difficult um and i was like this this definitely seems very distinct and very unusual um probably it could be a new species and so i, I talked to the curator of entomology at the wa museum talked to the um scientists who did the last revision of Leoproptus, and both of them were like yeah this isn't this isn't something that's already described so i was like yeah undisguised species. And something I really appreciate about science in general is that there's so much collaboration at so many different steps of the process. And I've heard from from many, many people who've come on this podcast that one of the first and most important things that you have to do once you've exhausted all your material resources is to talk to experts in the field. And that just, I think, highlights the need for taxonomic experts and people like yourself who are really passionate about entomology. Yeah, there's definitely a shortage of um, taxonomists. Like, there's no, I guess, taxonomic training in Australia. Like, I just had to teach myself. Um, and yeah, given that there's so many species that are undescribed, there's like so little funding for it. Like, I didn't do this as part of like a taxonomy degree. I just was like, yeah, I want to do this. This is this is important to describe. And you know, if you don't describe species, they aren't known. They can't be given any protection. And maybe like that's why Australia is so, I guess, famous for having so many like species that are endangered and threatened is because we don't put in the effort to describe our incredible biodiversity. As I said, like our biodiversity is super unusual compared to the rest of the world and it really needs more, more investment and more conservation attention. So you mentioned genetic work. Can you talk about that part of your paper? Yeah, so I had gotten a um, a little grant from Flowhive, which is a um, company that makes, um, ironically, given that I study like the negative impacts of honeybees on native bees, they make um, hives for honeybees and they make it in a way that's, I guess, um, easier to extract the honey. Um, and their their model is really successful. So like, well done them. Um, and it's great that they have wanted to, I guess, put back into research in pollinators in general. So I got this grant to barcode um, the native bees that I had discovered. And um, there's a sort of global initiative called um, the um, barcode of life, and they want to basically get the genetic barcode, um, like a particular gene of every single species described and undescribed, and you know, ideally um, described in the end. Um, and so I did that with my bees, and um, barcoding is like, I guess it's it's a way of establishing that something is a distinct species, a way of matching um males and females because I'm, I've got another paper that I'm working on and males and females can look super super different um and unless you see them I guess and catch them having sex then you don't know whether they're like the same species um so yeah it's it's really good to 
make sure that you also don't, I mean, this other paper that I'm working on, um, there was these, um, this species of bee that was described as two different species because it was described like 100 years ago and someone described the male and someone described the female um, and they didn't know what the other sex was. So it's two species. And so I'm essentially reducing the number of species with this new paper. <laughs> but yeah, it's important to like be like, this is actually one species rather than two separate. You can also look at, um, you know, the relationship among species. Ideally for that, you need more genetic data, but it's a good start. And as I said, with um, like the barcode of this species and looking at it in relation to the other species of Leoproptors that have been barcoded, it doesn't, it doesn't go with any of the currently recognized subgenera either. So it sort of like reinforced that it was um, distinctive. And can you briefly explain what you mean by barcoding? Yeah, so um, I guess every single species at base is different from the other species and you can recognize it's the same species by its genetic sequence. Um, and as species or populations become uh, genetically isolated, they evolve different DNA differences. And this is what makes them um, unable to interbreed and accumulate differences in their DNA so that they are on separate evolutionary trajectories. And by sequencing the DNA, of um, a particular gene that is used for barcoding, um, we're able to give that species, I guess, a unique identifier, which is its DNA barcode. And so you know for sure genetically that it's unique, you know for sure morphologically, obviously it's very physically unique, um, and then you gave it a name and you gave it a really special name. Yeah, so when you um, describe a species, um, part of that process is not only basically saying why it's distinct from other species where it's diagnostic characteristics, but you have to give it a, a name. Um, and every species has two parts, its name, the genus, and then the species part. So this one I knew by looking at the diagnostic characteristics that was a species in the genus Leoproctus. So the first part of its name is Leoproctus, but then the second part I got to choose and I called it Zephyr. And Zephyr is the name of my um, Marama sheepdog. And so I um, called it after my dog because she's very special to me. Oh, I think that's really sweet. Yeah, um, it's funny because like when you describe a species you know, you have naming rights and there's, you can describe it after like characteristics of it and the species name is usually like, it's in Latin. Um, so you could give it a descriptive name or you could name it after the place it was found or after, um, if you didn't collect it, you could um, name it after the person that collected it. You're not allowed to name it after yourself. But yeah, I, um, you can also name it after someone that is like important to you or significant to you and yeah I when I was like writing the paper like when you write a scientific paper it has to go out for review and it gets like critiqued and made sure that everything and it's like sound and right and one of the reviewers was like that's like weird calling it after your dog that's like a bit silly and I was like <laughs> no like there's nothing like wrong with calling it after my dog I'm gonna call it after my dog I don't care if it's not like highbrow sciencey. <laughs> um, I think 
it's and I'm so like not only you know I was not going to budge on that but it's actually I feel like if I did describe it like after the flower that it was found on or something like it wouldn't have gotten as much attention with the media and the public like people have really loved like latched on to this fact that I named it after my dog and that it has like its clypeus is protruding and I said it was like a bit like a snout so that sort of further ties it back to my dog and like yeah everyone's getting on board with that and if I didn't I feel like it would just be you know another species like oh new species move on like people are really like excited about this so yeah I'm, I'm really happy I did that and at the end of the day it's up to you you did all the you did all the work yeah so why is your discovery important and why is it important that we keep studying and describing new species of bees? Well, I think it's important to show that firstly, you don't have to go out into the middle of nowhere to find new species and that new species um, are, you know, sort of like right under our noses in our backyards, at least in places where there's still native vegetation left. And it really reinforces that we have to keep this native vegetation and the, I guess the great thing about cities is that we have a lot more control over what happens. And there's, you know, there's a big, I guess, public um, voice in cities. I'm hoping that it will really, I guess, raise awareness about the importance of, of conserving native vegetation um, and also just raising awareness that there are still native bees to be discovered and also that more research and more investment needs to be dedicated to native bee taxonomy because yeah there's there's still so much more to discover and um i guess people there's still many, so many people that think that bees are honeybees and that that is the symbol of bees and that's what bees are but they they're actually very different from most bees and conserving honeybees weren't conserved native bees so yeah um I guess it's it's really good that this has made people, I guess, appreciate more that there are different bees and that they have different requirements and they need to be conserved. And so if that sounds good to you, you too can study bees and study native pollinators and maybe name something after your dog. Yes. Or cat. <laughs> or cat. Yeah. I've got a cat called Pickle, so... Um, I guess the next species will be, you know, Leoproctus picklesy or something. <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> Kit, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Kit Prendergast paper, Leoproctus zephyr, an oligoletic new bee species with a distinctive clypeus, is in volume 93 of the Journal of Hymenoptera Research. See the episode details for an open access link to the paper, and to learn more about Kit and her work, you can follow her on Instagram. Link also in the description. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespodcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.